to the 15th episode of the Real Emergency Vodcast. Um, and today's theme day is uh, Save a Life Day. And I think we can say with confidence that in the two years that we've been doing Real Emergency, we've helped you, the EMS clinician, maybe save some lives. That's what we're here to do. And we're so proud that we have thousands and thousands of views on our YouTube channel and countless more who are watching for continuing education credit on Prodigy. So for today's episode, which is our 15th episode, our panelists have each chosen a few clips from past episodes that they'd like to revisit and, uh, and look back on. We'll be focusing on those clips that provided lots of value, both clinically and educationally. And we just want to remind you that Real Emergency is produced in partnership with Hantevi, Real DX, and 410 Medical, and it's powered by Prodigy EMS. I'm Hillary Gates. I'm the Director of Educational Strategy for Prodigy EMS. All episodes are available to you for CAPSI credit on Prodigy EMS. And for those of you watching live today who want to earn your one hour of CE, we'll have a QR code on the slides at the end that you can scan and uh, direct you to uh, the form to fill out to get your CE. Make sure you check us out on your favorite uh, podcast platform or on the Real Emergency YouTube channel. And don't forget to follow and like us on Facebook and Twitter. Let me briefly introduce our resident experts. David Spiro is a pediatric emergency physician and professor at the University of Arkansas Medical System, and he's the chief medical officer of Real DX. Peter Antevi is a pediatric emergency medicine physician, an EMS physician, and the founder of Pediatric Emergency Standards Incorporated. Mark Peel is a pediatric intensivist at WakeMed in Raleigh, North Carolina, and he's the medical director with WakeMed Mobile Critical Care. Dr. Peel is also founder and chief medical officer of 410 Medical. Finally, Zach Dunlap is a critical care paramedic, and he works as a clinical education specialist for 410 Medical, and we're so Thankful to have these fine educators uh, present to us all these amazing cases. So let's get on to it. Some tips for watching today. We want you to weigh in. The panelists will absolutely ask you for your feedback and your questions and comments. So feel free to type in the chat or unmute your mic and join us. We also, for today's episode, would love to hear what you've enjoyed about Real Emergency in the past. And uh, we can share those uh, once we get closer to the end of the episode. So. We're gonna get started with David presenting uh, his first clip. And this is from uh, one of our early episodes. David, if you can um, just kind of set up the clip a little bit um, before James plays it, then uh, we'll give everybody a little bit of context. Over Actually, to you. Let, well, first of all, before we get started, I wanna uh, say it's an incredible honor, Hillary, to work with you in Prodigy. And you know, this has been an incredible organic uh, experience over the last two years. and. I've been a, a bunch of a couple different organic processes, and this has been one of my most favorite things that uh, I've ever participated in, and mostly because I got to meet people like you and James and and Amy and and Zach and and Peter and Mark and uh, and Rob. And you know, one of the things is is that I've learned is that everyone here is dedicated to trying to move the needle and uh, support this incredible group of paramedics and EM, EMS providers. And um, I just feel really, really honored to be a part of, of this process. And uh, I, I'd like to start by uh, just firing up the video, because I'm all about the video, you know that. So let's just fire up the video. We don't need to set too much up. And um, let's, this is one of the first episodes that we, we created. And uh, why, why don't you roll the tape? 
Okay, so I am. So he full, has a full body shaking. Yes. Um. Yes. This is will be his third. Is his he taking medications? Um. No. And I knew that his fever was getting up there, and I was trying to get I think this case uh, uh, exemplifies the issue of. Uh, ABCs and the first things that you need to do. And, you know, we we at Real DX and a lot of the cases that we've shown have been around showing real patient video and sort of learning from it. And what we can learn from real patient scenarios of bringing people together like all of us who uh, have seen some of these things and learned. I've learned so much since I've been here. One of the things I learned from that particular case is that it's really important to uh, undress the child and look at a child's respiratory rate. And obviously this was an extreme example where there was a red blanket over the child, but uh, specifically with children, which gets everyone anxious if you're not just taking care of kids and even if you are, children can be in respiratory distress or respiratory failure and you don't know it unless you actually undress them. And you know one of the things we learn from an ATLS standpoint is is that you take, you, you actually take folks, uh, you take their, their clothing off or whatever's on them uh, to actually visualize what's happening. And a child in respiratory distress can be actually, it can actually be subtle. So um, that, that's the primary point of that video. It should be really, really uncomfortable when you see that. And um, Peter, Mark, Zach, I don't know if, if you have any other thoughts, but that was the one piece from that case, I really wanted to get uh, forward. And the last thing I'll say is that today, I've been looking forward to today so much because when I'm working with a resident for eight hours in a shift, if they learn one thing in a shift, it's a, it's a complete victory. And so I'm hoping each of you can take away one thing from each of these clips. And the one thing that I wanna share is that uh, undress the child, take a look at their chest, especially if it's a toddler, uh, young baby, infant, uh, because you really can't assess them unless you actually get to expose their um, respiratory effort. David, yeah. maybe tell us what you saw, since we're not, I don't know if we're going to watch the rest of that scenario, which I'd like to if we could, but what did you see and how did you, how did the paramedics there respond? Yeah, well, that child was actually in, uh, turns out that child was in a, a complex febrile seizure and it was unclear whether when the child was uh, uh, undressed, whether the child was actually postictal or whether the child was actually actively seizing. And that was a lot of the discussion for that case as well. And the teaching point is that sometimes after a long seizure, whether a child's in status epilepticus or whether it's a complex uh, febrile seizure, which this was, sometimes at the end of it, uh, with it when a child is tonic, it's sometimes very subtle to figure out whether the child is actually still seizing or not. Uh, and it can be it can be just a difficult, difficult uh, thing to think about about how aggressive you want to be with anti-epileptics. Uh, yeah, um, I'm gonna make a comment because I think you know what I love about David is that you're you're so focused on assessment. And I think that a lot of us um, kind of want to go to the cool stuff, right? Uh, but it's so important, especially in pediatrics, to focus on assessment. And so what, what I wanted to mention of this case is the fact that, and some of the mistakes that I see that are happening in the field, especially coming into the emergency department, is that the kid has a seizure, 
and let's say that they got a benzo, right? They got midazolam and people throw on the non-rebreather, right? That's because what people do, here's a non-rebreather and now the kid's breathing, I'm just going to make this up four times a minute. And all of us know that four times a minute at 100% FiO2 on a non-rebreather, they're going to be 100% O2 set, right? And you, know, you wheel them on in and you look at them on the stretcher as they're coming by you and you see the kids only breathing four times a minute, right? And the kid's unconscious, right? Because they're quote unquote post-ictal. And what, what, what passes by many people is that if they just would have put an end title on the kid, it would have been 60, 70, right? So also the waveform capnography will give you a respiratory rate. Like it's the cheat code, right? You, you could see that the kid is only breathing four times a minute. So please use end title. It'll help you get to the simple stuff, which is how are they breathing? Are they breathing effectively? What's their respiratory rate? What's their O2 sat? What's their end title CO2? And oftentimes these kids need an OPA. And if the OPA sits there, that means that, yeah, they're, they, they probably needed that OPA. And then you can go ahead and bag those people. So um, I just wanted to reemphasize that um, what you're saying is very, very important. And I want people not to forget some of the basics when it comes to vital signs and title CO2 may be the most important one. Great. Let's uh, let's move on to uh, Peter's clip. Um, he's going to present from uh, a case that we had that was quite unique um, in that it was an end of life case um, where we had um, 911 response to a patient who was on hospice uh, who had some altered mental status and um, and some other issues. So um, James, if we could cue that up and Peter, anything to add before we start? Yeah. Yes, before before we start, uh, first of all, thank you so much for, for the intro, uh, Hillary. Uh, this is a very important case to me. My father what was in hospice situation. Unfortunately, my dad had Alzheimer's. He passed away uh, several years ago. May he rest in peace. However, I will tell you that there were a number of occasions while he was on hospice that my mom had to call 911. And what, what this case that you're about to see really represents to me is the fact that when you walk into a home where there's an elderly person who's on hospice, who has something terminal, um, it's very difficult to kind of start to tease, is this a patient who's in the dying process, who wants to be left at home, or is it a patient who is in hospice, who happens to have an, who happens to have an acute event that does require hospitalization? We don't do a good enough job of teaching this, unfortunately. And before we play it real quickly, I want everyone to know, uh, James, before we play it, that all the patients in all the cases that we present here, uh, folks folks are giving consent. I just want everyone to be very clear, for if you're new to this, that all of our patients have had consent prior to playing. Sorry. Thank you. You do oxygen. <laughs> Let's get a glucometer out, check sugar, please. So glucometer's gonna be right here on Mark's backpack. 
Just take the bag out, whoever's digging it. Pull it off him. So, Darren, yeah. it's unclear. Comfort measures only. Do they not want an IV? Anything like that? No. We can't, I just want to confirm with her. Just, just to set that up is that the the mother, uh, the mother, the 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 wife. wife was a teacher, and she and and he was a teacher, and she thought that this would be a great opportunity for folks to learn. Uh, she pretty much panicked because there was some uh, agonal breathing uh, <clears throat> and there was supposed to be um, a hospice passing away at home. But um, these are really, really, really difficult situations. And um, I don't know, Rob or Zach, if you want to comment about this, but um, I, no, I don't I still don't know what the right answer is on in the, some level. The question I have for, for Doc is either any of you is how do we educate without talking them into either not maybe performing care or not transporting, if that makes sense. So there's there's an education piece there, but it's also a fine line that we face oftentimes because we're battling the emotions and the intensity of the situation sometimes. But I found oftentimes just educating them that this is the natural process, this is the way things are supposed to happen, you know, may be comfort to them and help us with maybe not transporting if that's not what they what they want. So just speak to that. What is that fine line and how does that education piece look for them? I, I'm curious to hear what Mark as a critical care physician uh, thinks about this because in some ways the the wife here is almost like a mother with for a pediatric patient. She's the advocate. And I'm just curious, sort of, these are really difficult situations and difficult conversations to have. And, and especially from an EMS provider who doesn't know the family and then all of a sudden they're put in that kind of situation really, really difficult. Mark, can you opine about that? Yeah, I'd love to. I wish I, um, David, I can't remember how he was involved with hospice or palliative care at the time, so that might be helpful to know. But I guess what I was impressed with was the total calm, kind approach that these guys took. It was, it was just, it made every, it brought everyone at ease, even, even us watching. And I think that there's almost two patients there. It was his, him and his wife. And I think, as I remember, the team turned to her, kind of got her input once they kind of done their basic assessment and allowed her to then it helped her make a, a more informed decision about what the next step was, which honestly, David, I can't remember what they chose to do, but I was just super impressed with the with the way that compassion that team showed. They minimized intervention, maximized the calm, caring approach they took to her and to her husband. When when people call. 911 when their loved one is on hospice, it's often because they don't know what else to do, right? That's sort of our, our lives, that we have to understand that people are absolutely panicked and they don't know what to do and we're their safety net. That's what that's what we do. 
hospice nurses are available often when people are on hospice, but they're not available in the same way we are that can be there uh, within five, eight, 10 minutes. Um, I do urge you all, um, those of you who are struggling with that in your system, go look at some of the hospice programs that are being um, implemented with mobile integrated healthcare and community paramedicine, where they are um, being adjuncts to the, those systems and helping out with hospice because hospice doesn't have uh, uh, the amount of um, personnel that they need. And, um, and all the experiences I've had, they're exactly the same as everyone's talking about in the chat, which is um, that there's a disconnect often between what the patient wants and what the family wants, and you're there to mitigate that. And it's an incredibly emotional, uh, emotionally demanding situation. Peter, now that you're back, um, mm -hmm. just yeah. uh, lots of lots of chats about you know how difficult this is, but um, provide yeah. some insight for us on what you're thinking about. Yeah, so there, there's two things. Number one, I put the paper in the chat, so um, read that. It'll kind of prime all of us for maybe what some next steps are. Uh, the second thing is I think we need to do some um, simulation type activity at our departments to, to help figure that out. But I wanted to end with the most common call I get as a medical director. Hey, doc, I'm on scene. It's a hospice patient. And the, in Florida, it's got to be like canary yellow paper and it's got to be signed by the right people, the whole thing. It's never signed. It's never the right paper. It's never, never, never. So I made a policy about 10 years ago that said, if the patient's a hospice patient and you can confirm that and someone says they're, you know, if, if it's the right person uh, legally, that this is my father, my mother, my brother, my sister, and they're a hospice patient and the story sounds right and everything sounds right, it's just that the form is not correct. It's a call to me. I hear the story and then I say, you're going to put, you're going to use my name as this is a functional DNR. People thought I was crazy, but I, I could tell you that there's hundreds of patients because one of my systems, we deal primarily with hospice, but it's a private ambulance company. And uh, like I hear has been mentioned, people call at the very, at the 11th hour because they are, they're worried that, oh my God, this, they're seizing or they're, they're vomiting, whatever, and they get nervous. We have to be able to come in and respect their wishes if they're in the dying process. Um, and we, we, we have to do more about that. So if, if you don't have a medical director to get involved, I would say try to get the medical director involved so that we can overcome the issues that all of us experience with these forms. So thanks. Wonderful. And Peter and Hillary, I just noticed in the chat, William said that oh, they yeah. do a one day ride along with hospice nurses um, each year. And, and I think that seems like an effective way to kind of condition yourself for these situations. So Peter, do, you, do your folks do that or how do you, um, how do you feel about that? We, we we don't, but my private ambulance group, we, we deal with the hospice folks um, specifically. We've actually created our own protocols to go along with what the hospice folks do, which is very different than my regular protocol. I'm happy to share it. Uh, but yeah, but Bill, Bill Schneiderman is a very knowledgeable man. Let me tell you. So Bill, thanks for that comment. I, I love that idea. Yeah. yeah, that's fabulous. Okay, Mark, uh, we're, we're going to head over to you for um, the next case, which sure. is a pretty dramatic case of a gunshot wound. How would you like to uh, set this up? Yeah, so to one of my favorite topics, trauma resuscitation and kind of the other end of the spectrum of what we were just talking about. You heard David mention focusing on the ABCs when approaching a pediatric patient in trauma, we're learning increasingly that we need to focus on the CABs, like consider the, the important role of circulation first, both stopping bleeding and resuscitating before we um, actively manage uh, or, or perform high-level airway interventions. And so this uh, clip 
or these two clips illustrate that well, an expertly performed resuscitation um, in near Houston's ex, a former agency actually. And um, James, if you would play the one clip first and then stop and we'll play the second one. I wanna set it up. You've probably seen this before, but it was a gentleman shot in his uh, garage in a home invasion. And you're going to first see the paramedics approach the patient in the garage. And then next we'll see him loaded into the ambulance. So just, I wish we could talk about this for a lot longer, but the, the scene is no blood, but a known gunshot wound, a small ballistic wound in the shoulder, with breath sounds on the left, but a pressure of 85 and the, and the patient says he's dying. So we know there's something bad catastrophic going on inside. We don't know where the blood is. We don't know where the injury is, um, but we can obviously see there's something bad going on. And then James, if you'll go to the second clip. Uh, 99 over 60. Perfect. So keep it on. Okay. We got another blood pressure going, 100 over 63. I'm convinced that with the continued infusion of blood products that he will hopefully, and we can resolve his tension pneumo, this was actually a physician that jumped in the truck and in the minutes before this they had delivered a couple units of blood they had opened his chest drained a bunch of air and blood out all in preparation for advanced airway management the patient's the mental status had steadily declined his blood pressure i think was in the 60s zach you can nod if that's about right um and he was approaching cardiac arrest from hypovolemic shock and to then put an advanced airway in, in that situation, despite his GCSO3, risked uh, a cardiac arrest in that moment. And so that the team was effectively able to resuscitate with blood, actually whole blood, and get his systolic in the hundreds. I think he got calcium as well. He got his chest opened, and then he was uh, expertly pre-oxygenated and intubated and whisked off to downtown Houston, where uh, he went straight to the OR and uh, walked out of the hospital later after repair of his uh, internal thoracic wounds. Fascinating story illustrating the CAB concept. Yeah, I mean, everything kind of had to go perfect for this guy. A couple of things that, you know, there was a hospital that was about three minutes away. It was not a trauma hospital, right? So there's still that argument across the country to get him to the hospital as quickly as possible. I would argue that he got clearly um, effective pre-hospital care. Everybody did their, did their job how they're supposed to. Interestingly, not just that he got blood, but he got blood quickly. He got several units quickly um, and then was able to, to be resuscitated, as, as Doc said. So just one of those things where everything had to go right, but it was also something that had been rehearsed, practiced, and everybody was on the same page ahead of time. So there was never any chaos or confusion about what was going to happen on this case. I, I have a comment, and I, I, wanted, I want to just mention here that from the time that we recorded this episode the first time, which was our very first episode, until today, the world has changed. And uh, you, Mark Peel, have had a big, big influence in that. So thank you very much. So we now in Broward County have blood, thanks to Dr. Jim Roach and Heath Clark. We have it in Palm Beach County, thanks to my amazing leadership team uh, and my fire chiefs. And I can tell you that people thought for a long time that, oh, we're so close to the hospital. Let's just let them do it. That's completely wrong. So we, thanks to Mark and the life flow, we are able to give a unit in a couple of minutes. And um, our data is staggering that if you got the blood before you got into cardiac arrest, 
there's a 90% chance survival, including an officer who was shot in the groin um, and he had a hole in his groin about that big. Uh, he was bleeding out, he was unconscious. And before we took his airway, as to Mark's point, my, my EMS captain said, let's give the, the guy blood first. We gave him a unit, the guy wakes up and he says, give me more. Um, my buddy was the trauma surgeon on that case. And he calls me up afterwards and he says, this is incredible. And so there, there's a huge tidal wave of whole blood happening across this country. Mark, uh, you're, you're, you're because, it's because of you. It's because of people like CJ Winkler, Randy Schaefer, and many, many others. And so, you know, Zach, the fact that you had this on video, that this video changed the world, my friend. So thank you so much for what you guys do. This is crazy. Yeah, I think, I think I, I, the take home is effective resuscitation in a critically injured patient can can change their dramatically change their outcome and save a life even in a few minutes. So it doesn't have to delay, doesn't have to delay transport. And I think they showed that. And there's a lot of data now that they are showing that. So Mark, yeah, if you can I'll put any there. if you can put any uh info um into more whole blood data in addition to what you've already done, go for it. But um can I just okay. say one thing I I just want to thank Mark for his leadership because you know, one of the things that drew Mark and Peter and I together initially was that we all started companies and started doing things in ways to actually push the needle. And uh, I really appreciate Mark's Hello? recognition of the fact that uh, he saw things clinically and took action on it and actually has developed national leadership and pushing the edge of getting blood products earlier. And uh, this video and the work that Mark has done with his group uh, is really pushing that needle. And thank you so much. So I'm an EMS chief in a very, very rural part of Montana. Um, some of our transport times are 45 minutes to the closest critical access hospital. Montana does not allow us to do any RSI. So hmm. in this situation, other than calling flight, which we have a trauma facility by air 20 to 25 minutes. And I've, I've coached all my people on, as soon as we hear the call, we pretty much know then launch it, then it's better to have it and cancel than to be behind the ball. But so in this instance where we can't RSI, we're so far away, do you have any other recommendations for us? Because we don't have any assistance. The fire department is all volunteer. So usually, You've got a driver and a medic that respond. So we're, 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 we're. So I'll, <laughs> I'll put in one thought and then I'll let the others. But one thing we're showing is that if you resuscitate, and if you're talking about trauma, if you resuscitate, you may not have to intubate. We, we actually are uh, about to present those data that people that got blood earlier may not have even needed an RSI. They may not have even needed a, an advanced airway. I think, Peter, you're seeing that in Broward as well. Um, I don't know how to help you with changing the law in Montana to allow you to have RSI protocol. What, what does anyone else think? Um, I can I can tell you that um, I just got hit up by the, the state of Colorado, and they said that based on what we're seeing happening in Texas and Florida, the state of Colorado is going and they're creating their own whole blood mechanism for everybody in the state. This is what it has to come down to. We have people at the federal government level who are reaching out to me um, who are saying, we have to make this happen on a federal level. So um, it's coming. It's going to come your way, whether you like it or not. So I would say instead of you working on, uh, at your own agency, which sounds rural and it sounds like it's a big task, start from the top because that's where the money is. 
And that's where the structure can come in. And then the last thing I'll say is, please join the Tulane registry if you have a blood program, because someone asked about data in the, in, in the, in the chat there. Um, all of our data now goes to one registry. This is gonna be like the CARES registry for cardiac arrest. They're, they have the Tulane whole blood registry. Uh, please send the data in because the data that, that you know, Mark's involved in getting, and I, I know he can't tell some of the data because it hasn't been published yet, but it's mind blowing. And it's and, gonna um, Peter, thank you for that. I put that in the chat. Um, we've had a few people say we're not allowed to give blood. And it seems like the two things that prevent this are cost and availability and, and kind of maintenance. One of the things that you, you a lot of you will say is that you don't have either um, a cooler to keep the blood cool or warmer to give warm blood. And there are lots of agencies around the country, look at New Orleans EMS, who are doing things with blood that don't use coolers and don't use warmers. Um, and it still seems to help. The initial data says that. So we do need to move on to our next case, which, which is a bit of a pivot. So um, Zach, we're going to go over to you for um, anaphylaxis and um, go ahead and set us up. Yeah. So this one basically um, was an uh, anaphylaxis reaction at an, an allergy clinic of all places. Um, I remember sitting there getting the call as a colleague of mine was telling me about how he had just returned to work from an anaphylactic reaction being uh, that he had to be intubated uh, on so that it was very ironic. Um, and we got there and as you'll see in this first part, this patient is very, very sick. He's in severe anaphylactic shock. Um, and so we'll go ahead and play the first clip. Three rounds of that Okay. 0.3 times three med treatment. Is that just albuterol or? Just albuterol. Okay. Okay. All right. 61. 61 right now? Yeah. Okay. Let's go ahead and clear the stretcher. I'm going to try. So as you can see here, he's already had three epi. His O2 saturation is 61. This is what I call a bad day. Um, and he's laying flat. So the crew immediately sets him upright uh, and then starts aggressively resuscitating with CPAP, a lot of positive pressure. I think they put the PEEP to 10. Um, more epi. Technically, if you're going by your, your guidelines and protocols, he's already had three doses of epi, right? So, but it would be insane to not give more epi. So they hit him with IM, then they gave a push dose epi, and then started him in an epi drip of 10 mics. Um, and he ended up, ended up turning around. Hypoxia is a pulmonary vasoconstrictor, and pulmonary vasoconstriction is the afterload to the right side of the heart. And so there is, you know, correcting hypoxia aggressively is also a way to reduce afterload on the right side of the heart and improve like forward flow through the system. And so there is also lots of things at play, but potentially also a hemodynamic benefit um, to doing that. Good point. Well, you know, what I love about that is that it goes back to the theory of ventilation, oxygenation and ventilation have probably more to do with flow than anything else, right? So opening up those lung beds, um, you know, by by relieving the hypoxia is a critical thing in, in, in this case and also in cases of cardiac arrest. So I, I love that comment and hopefully people take that one to heart. A little bit thumbs up or worse? Okay, good. Um, so to give some context there, what Dr. Dorsett and Dr. Antevi were talking about is one of the main questions came from this case is we, this guy was obviously hypotensive, requiring aggressive resuscitation with, with Epi, Benadryl, and then he needs to be oxygenated as well. So being hypotensive, do we still give high doses of PEEP? And so that's what Dr. Dorsett was speaking to is we have to oxygenate this patient 
Uh, we don't sacrifice oxygenation due to hypotension. We can fix that with pressors. We're obviously giving epi. If you've given epi, give more epi. And Dr. Hentevi talks to that as well. Most, most uh, protocols stop at about, you know, after that third dose, they, you stop. Uh, but it's not always that simple and easy. And I would argue in this case right here, most of us don't see these patients turn around. And that's what was unique about him with regressive, aggressive resuscitation early on. I went out to the ambulance to get everything ready to go uh, to, to intubate this guy. And by the time he got out there with multiple epi IM, epi drip, uh, combi vent, Benadryl, um, he was starting to open back up and give the thumbs up as you, as you saw there at the end. So he actually turned around and avoided intubation. So what, what uh, comments do you have, doctors? Well, I, I have a comment. I see Magdalena says, I, I said, push dose to epi for everyone. Kind of, I joke because I love it so much. Uh, and she says, I wish we only do drips. Um, I would get rid of the drips. In my area, we're so close to a hospital that by the time we set the drip up, we're already there. Um, so push dose epi, if, if you know how to do it, it should take about 15 seconds, 20, 30 seconds maximum. And so I was on scene recently of a guy I was having a stroke. He was hypotensive. We gave push presser epi. We ended up, we, we tubed him. We put an OG, two IVs, got to the ER. He was in the CT scanner because the ER had nothing else to do. He had a large vessel occlusion. So were it not for the push presser epi quickly, a mile before we got to the hospital, it was only a mile away. So I, I would, I, the, 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 this thought about epi drips in EMS needs to be a secondary thing. Push presser epi needs to be in every EMS protocol, period. And I'll just say for children, bringing back to kids with anaphylaxis, oftentimes I think we underdose with epinephrine. Um, we often give it sub-Q. And after a few minutes, if a kid is still in distress, whether it's wheezing, whether it's you know diffuse urticaria, whether it's angioedema, after a few minutes with the maximum dose sub-Q that we give uh, in the ED, I just repeat the dose. I repeat the dose every few minutes. And then all, all of a sudden magic symptoms start to resolve. Uh, it, takes, it takes Benadryl and some other meds and steroids, of course, longer time to work. And epinephrine is just gold. Uh, and I think we oftentimes underdose it in cases of anaphylaxis, including in the pediatric population. No doubt. And it's, no worth, doubt. it's worth remembering that any drug that comes in drip form has a short half-life, which means once you give a dose, it's gone. The half-life is less than five minutes. So it's gone. That epi is gone. So redosing just is almost like giving a drip, as Peter said. So using the push dose, I think is valuable. And, and as Zach said, this guy had already had three injectors, but that had been well more than five minutes before you got there. So I think uh, he deserved more. And I'm, I'm gonna one, one more comment that I think people get nervous about epi on. If, if I give all of you one milligram of epi, one to 10,000 cardiac arrest epi, all of you end up in the cath lab. It, it hurts all of you. That's why giving epi to people with a pulse kills them. But if I took 10 mics of epi, right, which is just push pressure, one ml, and I gave it to you, it's like coming to Miami and having a cup of Cuban coffee, a little, little cortadito, okay? So it's harmless. It's harmless. So you can give one ml, another ml, another ml. It's not going to harm anybody. So it's safe. It's effective. You can titrate it by giving one ml at a time. We, that, that's, this is what we need to do, and there's good data on it. And here we have uh, Dr. Marvin Wayne. In Europe, they start with 0.5 milligrams. Physiologically makes more sense. And he says anaphylaxis is epi deficiency disease. Who knew? Right, but but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna comment to Marv. So, uh, 5, 0.5 milligrams is 500 micrograms, right? So 
that that's that's still a pretty juicy dose, Marv. I get it. And in your and so if you look at what the American Heart Association says, it says to use 0.1 milligrams, which which is a, a, a small dose. Um, but what what they don't tell you is to give it very very slowly. So they they kind of miss this whole dilution. And the only way to give that um, epi to an alive patient is to dilute it first. There's no prepackaged epi that is appropriate for the alive patient. So you have to make the push presser yourself. Again, it takes about you know, 15 to 30 seconds. Great. Let's move on to a few more cases. Um, we have coming up next, um, David talking about um, a case from kind of a pediatric potpourri uh, that we did. So David, go ahead. Yeah, just again, uh, this case is uh, take a look at the clip that you're going to see now and what makes you feel uncomfortable when you take a look at this clip. So roll it. This is a um, infant presenting with abdominal pain uh, or some sort of pain crisis uh, to the mother. All right, so we're here today with Allison's mom. This is this is Allison. She's not feeling very well right now. Mom, can you tell me what, what started today? Um, she just, she had been fine all day and then all of a sudden she would have bouts of like, I mean, it was kind of like she was throwing a temper tantrum. Mm -hmm. She could tell she was in a lot of pain and something wasn't right. Um, and she had been having a lot of bowel movements throughout the day. Um, so that's what, whenever she was in a lot of pain is when I decided to bring her in. Was she constantly in pain or did it come and go in, in kind of episodes? It would come and go in episodes. She would be able to be soothed for like a few minutes and then she would just start screaming again. Okay. And how old is she now? She is a year old. Okay. Okay. So we just played 10, 15 seconds into this. Is this child sick or not sick? Is this child someone that you're extremely worried about right this second? Are you not? Um, thoughts, comments? David, what time of the day is this? Do you happen to know that? Yeah, it's 11 a.m. So she's been, she's been, her, her sleep pattern is completely off uh, and uh, had, a, had a really difficult time uh, sleeping the night before. Okay. Yeah, because one, one of my golden rules in the emergency department is no one ever leaves my emergency department asleep. So I think I think the, the, the learning point there is that child was not right. And I know everyone on this call understands this, but you know, for a child this age, the parent is the proxy and parents know their kids for the most part. And are, are, I, I always listen to the mother when the mother's concerned about a child, that gets me concerned. And if you saw that child in that position, which is prone with the legs flexed like that and just sleeping like that, that's a classic uh, position and concern for an abdominal uh, intestinal obstruction, which we call intussusception. So imprint that in your brain. You shouldn't forget that. that that's a concern and that needs to be transported. So uh, I don't know, Mark, Peter, if you all have any comments about that. No, I mean, that was the, that's a perfect example uh, of an intussusception. So the child... I describe these children as having apathy more than lethargy. And I think this one was asleep too, but just didn't care about what was going on. Bright room, new provider, and laying with the legs, legs tucked up after bouts of abdominal pain. That is in the susception. It's a bowel obstruction. It needs to be treated quickly. And I think when a mother states that she's concerned about the change in the, in, in the mental status of a Absolutely. child. Absolutely. 
you just pay attention to it. You just Absolutely. don't because you could look at that child and say, "Oh, that child's sleeping." Uh, but when the mother says, "In the last twenty-four hours, this child's not been acting right," that's the teaching point. Pay attention to that. The comment I'll make on that is, is that if you walk into the home and the kid looks relatively, or it's nighttime, the kid looks okay, and you automatically think, like, you just woke me up and your kid looks pretty good. And, and all of a sudden you give the mom the vibe that like, why did you just call 911? She will never give you the information that you need. And the, the history that you should have taken and the questions you should have asked, she's just cursing at you on the inside. And so I always tell my folks, to always be open and always tell the parent, I'm, I'm glad that you called. Then the mom says, oh, I like this person. I knew I should have called. And then they'll give you all the information that you needed to make this diagnosis, which is not so easy to make. Yeah, I would okay. say the last thing I'll say is that a lot of parents come in and their kid is fine. And they're like, oh, I feel so bad you're coming to the ER today. And, you know, I always reassure them and say, I'm so glad you came in because I got to meet you and whatnot. I'm giving parents the benefit of the doubt. And I'd rather they come in uh, if they're anxious or concerned, because God forbid they have a problem like this. Uh, I want to be able to take care of it. And David, Mark, Peter, Zach, you guys have to know how valuable your human factors training is for us as well. Leanna has just chimed in to say, as a parent of a special needs child who has a trach and a G-tube, I cannot express strongly enough that parents know their kids. And you guys are giving us the tools to talk to parents correctly. Um, really quickly, though, um, I don't even like to say it, much less spell it. But David, quickly, what is intussusception exactly? A uh, really good word. It's a really good word. And unfortunately, it's too long to play in a Scrabble, a, a regular Scrabble. <laughs> Way too many. <laughs> but um, intussusception is when the intestine involutes on itself and actually causes an obstruction. It becomes swollen and and uh, and then and then um, uh, uh, with peristalsis that causes pain and discomfort. And it's actually an obstruction that needs to be resolved. Thankfully, 90% of the time it can be resolved with what's called an air contrast enema where you blow air through the, the, the rectum and uh, in, in the radiology suite and oftentimes it can be resolved. 10% of the time that doesn't work or it, it recurs and uh, a child would need surgery. But um, most of the time these, children, time these children can go home and we can solve the problem. Wonderful. Thank you. All right, Peter, um, I think we may be ending with your clip and then asking uh, asking our audience what they want to talk about. Um, but you've got a great um, idea here for airway management. Um, and it's good that we have Dr. Wayne on board as well. Yeah, so uh, I want to clarify what, what what Dr. Wayne mentioned on his lot, the 0.5 yeah. milligrams. He was talking about intramuscular epi. So yes, a lot of people uh, would agree with that. I was talking about the IV form. So Marv, thank you for clarifying. So uh, Dr. Marv Wayne, if you don't know him, is just an incredible human being, an incredible ER doctor, but maybe even the best EMS medical director because he's on scene. This clip may have gotten the most traction uh, of, of any clip that I've ever used, which is they were on scene for a fire. There were three patients, uh, four patients, three of them needed to be intubated, and one was a child, and um, that child received a 4.0 tube on scene when they really needed a six and a half tube, right, a, a 6.5 tube. So that tube was placed on scene. They decided to not change it out until you got to the emergency department. That was about a 20 minute difference. So why I wanna show this clip is that you'll see the airy retinoid folds really swollen just 20 minutes later. 
And therefore, it's to impress upon everybody, do the right thing on scene, intubate on scene if you have to, because once you wait, it's too late. But you'll see a very interesting corkscrew technique. I want Dr. Wayne to talk about it afterwards, um, that he actually let his medic in the emergency department re-intubate this child. So let's play the clip and hold on to your seats for this one. So this is the re-intubation. They just pulled the 402. And the first thing that comes into view right there at the bottom of the area retinoid folds, that's what swells up in a burned airway. Those were not swollen 20 minutes ago. And now we have a, a, um, a cuffed ET tube, 6.5, 6 or 6.5, I'm not sure. And um, if you put anything smaller in here, there's no way you'll be able to suction anything out of this kid's lungs. You, you kind of needed this size of a tube. So what you're going to see is that, you know, you had Dr. Wayne over this guy's shoulder saying, okay, corkscrew it. Just put some gentle pressure, gentle pressure. And you'll see here, there is the corkscrew to the right because it's a beveled ET tube. And then right about here, right about here, as your heart is somewhere in your abdomen, <laughs> <laughs> boom, there it goes. And so this kid had a great outcome. And so Dr. Wayne, uh, Mr. Legend, and uh, soon to be uh, having a big, big birthday, my friend, welcome to the show and give us some comments. Hey, hey Peter, can you guys hear me? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, first of all, thank you for the privilege of being on two of your shows. And I do consider it a privilege. Peter, you're uh, as a, a Yiddisha, we would say you're a mensch. You've done so much to make lives better. I just annoy people. Hey, seriously, well, I do that too. So this was a, a early morning call. Flamer actually was around us. So they kind of beat it down. And we really were working in the back. I had a student and, and, and four other medics with all these patients. And I, I didn't look over the shoulder on the intubation. The, the small tube actually fell out. Um, and uh, it was not that we pulled it. I promise you, we would have not pulled it. Um, we would have used that to continue to oxygenate. So what we did is the best we could, high flow nasal. Uh, and this is, this is the result. And we had all these patients. So I took one of them, which was this little kid. Um, and there's a lot of things. This call occurred several years ago and I kept it for a while because the medical legal reasons to make sure everything was clear with the family and all that. The key I would, would go back to what Peter said, uh, burned airway is an airway disease, okay? Or inhalation injury is an airway disease. I, whatever other this external burns the patient has, the one that's not, those aren't gonna kill the patient unless there's other trauma immediately. What's gonna kill them is hypoxia and, uh, hypoventilation. So this is a scary situation. And we had three of these. We had mom with grumus pouring out of her airway. We had the 13-year-old and this was the 10-year-old. So just again, this was an error, uh, even with the doc there. I, you know, I couldn't watch all of them. And this is, uh, uh, I hope people will watch the full real AMS of this because I think you guys brought up some amazing points. No, we didn't do a lot of things that we would do better today but it shows the contrast. So thank you. And again, as always, I'm privileged to, to have the pleasure of, of working with and harassing Peter because he is, he is in many ways my idol, even at my, my senior age. And the other thing is we're struggling to put the blood program together. It's strange because EMS is 100% on board. The blood system is on board and we have a hospital, which is the only hospital in the area, which is a level two trauma that doesn't understand what whole blood is. Well, but thanks wow. again, guys. 
Marv, it, ta Marv. it takes it takes leadership to actually show people a case that you you feel could have gone better. So thank you for doing that, and and thanks for your leadership in in EMS. So Hillary, back to you. Let's open it up. Okay, so um, I heard earlier in our chat from Rita who talked about the anaphylaxis um, case. And Rita, if you're comfortable, um, either in the chat or if you want to unmute, what did you learn from that anaphylaxis case? Because um, you mentioned it early on in our um, in our session today, um, did something change your practice, or um, when you watched it, what what struck you? It, it's more like getting that word out there because we have a battle working through the state to get push dose pressors and see the need for repetitive doses of epi and things like that. And to have a case where you actually show that is so beneficial to pass on that word and bring that to light to so many people. And that's what I liked about that because not many people get to hear about that. You get to hear about the anaphylaxis and a dose of epinephrine and you're good to go. So having that case was beneficial to have some discussions. And I'm hoping that we're getting it into a couple of our guidelines on the critical care side. And I hope that, that we have a epi drip now, but I'm, I'm hoping that that push dose, you know, melts into those protocols a lot better with the coming year. I, I had a tragic case recently where the, an adolescent with a nut allergy ate ate a bunch of nuts inadvertently and had a severe anaphylaxis and refused the EpiPen for 20 minutes because she was scared of it. And I, I understand that in that scary situation, but she ultimately died. And um, it shows the value of early and effective treatment of anaphylaxis. And so I guess I would just emphasize everything you guys have already said. Um, early treatment makes a difference in many diseases, but particularly anaphylaxis. When you look at the data on 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 um, on epi in, in EMS for anaphylaxis, it's it's very low. And uh, there there were study there was a lot of studies out there that show that. I even heard of one agency in California who wants to take away Benadryl just so that the medics only have one right. thing to give, which is epinephrine. And, uh, so, I mean, like, it's kind of a weird thing. It's like when someone asks you, where is your left ear? You, you do this. I mean, it doesn't make any sense that you would pull off Benadryl. Just, well, just give the freaking epi. Um, that, that, that's what I would say. And give it first. Yeah, I've heard that too, Peter. That's not the first time I've heard that um, removing the Benadryl would, would lead to more epi. Yeah. Great. We have um, we have Aubrey uh, Wright who talked about um, her department really enjoying the, the pediatric videos. Aubrey, I don't know if you're able to unmute um, and tell us what you've done with them. But um, for Aubrey or anyone, have you used these in your training? Have you showed them in a group setting or in a classroom? And if so, how and uh, and what you know tips can you give us uh, and your fellow uh, viewers today? Yeah, um, I'm Aubrey. We are in Central California in the middle of the National Forest. Um, and we do have um, camp here. And so we run about 2,000 kids here on camp weekly in the summer. And so pediatrics is big for us. We're an hour and a half from any local hospital. So all the pediatric, the real videos have been incredible for our team. We actually sit down twice a month and kind of walk through some of those videos. We do other stuff too, but um, then we do like real life scenarios with some kids who live here and just kind of play them out and help our EMTs just know what to do and how to do it well. So you guys are incredible teachers for us, even though it's not live, but it's, it's pretty incredible. So thank you. 
Love it. Sounds like a beautiful place. Maybe we can do a live uh, real emergency from your camp. <laughs> hey, we would not be opposed to that. You are more than welcome. I mean, you, have, um, you basically, Mark, you're basically saying like, we'll have 2000 kids. You just go sit there with the camera and wait for somebody to do something silly. Exactly. exactly. It happens all the time. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm going to jump in, guys. The good Dr. Antivy, I know is a camp doc. There's a webinar slash podcast slash uh, video in there. I think there's there's something to, we need to do one of these actually. I was about to say I do uh, I do four weeks a year at a, at a camp because my kids go there and I, I spend time up there and though that I think I see like a thousand kids a day uh, I'm not sure why they keep coming to me to put cream on their hand I don't I'm not sure what it is <laughs> I'm a mosquito bite That's, yeah I just want to before Hillary sort of wraps it up I just want to uh, congratulate everyone on EMS week and uh, you know I'm I'm honored I'm a former paramedic and you know it's been an honor to work with you know, Mark and Peter and Rob and, and Prodigy. This has been a, just such an incredible experience. I think all of us are excited to bring you more. This is sort of our anniversary opportunity to sort of give you a potpourri, but we, we're, I think we're dedicated and excited about uh, bringing more interesting content to you all and would love feedback. But I just want to say, uh, guys, how this has been an incredible ride and want to continue the journey with you all. And, uh, Thank you for including me and in, in, in this ride. And uh, how about this? We should also ask people if you have video, if you have videos available yeah. to you, please send them our way because we need those. Um, David has a huge library of videos um, in Real DX, which if you haven't seen that, you should take a look at it. Uh, it's, it's a great educational tool. But uh, we're, we're going to selfishly ask for for more of your videos that if if, if that's possible. We uh, can't say enough how um, how much uh, of a thrill we get out of these episodes. All of us hang up and uh, keep talking about it for days. So you guys are are keeping us going, and uh, we applaud you for your efforts and your time and energy um, here as well. Um, thanks for joining us. Look for us to come back in uh, July or early August. And um, again, happy EMS week. <laughs>